0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on New Books History, New Books East European Studies, and New Books Genocide Studies today with my guest, Professor John Paul Himka, who has a new book uh, out. It is called Ukrainian Nationalists and the Holocaust O'UN and UPA's Participation in the Destruction of Ukrainian Jewry. This is just out and published by Ibidem Press, distributed by Columbia University Press as part of its new Ukrainian Voices series 2021. So thank you, Professor Himka, for joining me on the podcast today.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me, Stephen.
0: So uh, we have a lot to talk about, and I wanted to introduce um, John Paul's bio uh, for for those in our audience. I think um, many will be familiar with him and his work over the course of many years, even I think 40 years now. So John Paul Himka received his PhD back in 1977. His dissertation and first book were on the socialist movement in Austrian Galicia in the late 19th century. He followed this up with two other monographs on late 19th century Galicia, one on the spread of the Ukrainian national movement in the villages, and the other on the Greek Catholic Church and the Ukrainian national movement. And then uh, he went off in a different direction. He has another book about this topic by writing a study on the iconography of the Last Judgment in the Carpathian mountain region from the late 15th through the 18th centuries. After that monograph in 2009, his next major project was on the role of Ukrainian nationalists in the Holocaust, focusing on OUN, known as the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, and its armed force, the Ukrainian insurgent army, UPA. Professor Himka uh, had been writing about the Holocaust in Ukraine since 1988. Earlier articles on the topic included a study of anti-Semitism in Krakivsky Visti, a wartime newspaper, an overview of Ukrainian collaboration in the Holocaust more generally, and an essay on war criminality as a blind spot in the worldview of the Ukrainian diaspora. So we'll be talking about his book, Ukrainian Nationalists and the Holocaust, which was preceded by a dozen preparatory articles, including one on lviv pogrom in July 1941. Uh, and I should mention, this book too was preceded by a book co-edited with Joanna Beata Michlic called Bringing the Dark Past to Light, the Reception of the Holocaust in Post-Communist Europe. So, um, John Paul, I, I know I followed your work since I was a grad student uh, in 1999. I remember vividly reading um, your autobiographical sketch on Korean flights in many directions. And, and I'm interested not just in your, in your career as a professor and professor emeritus at uh, the Department of History, Classics, Religion at the University of Alberta, but what, what motivated you initially into this topic? This, this seems to be um, almost like a magnum opus or
1: culmination of, of a career's work. Well, I, I suppose you could go back a long ways, right, <laughs> to my grandmother uh, uh, telling me about the about the Jews uh, that she played with as a child, and she was a lamplighter. And then I never knew there was a problem between Ukrainians and Jews until uh, until I had a friend, uh, a, a, a woman friend in in Ann Arbor. <laughs> And uh, we were hanging out, and her mother came by and said, "Oh, this is odd—a Ukrainian and a Jew together." And I thought, "Why? You know, what's what's wrong with that?" Well, over time, I I learned that there were tensions between the two communities because of World War II. So then I started following things. I would say more seriously. Well, quite early, really. Uh, I I followed the topic of anti-Semitism when I was writing my first book on. On socialism in Galicia, when I was doing my dissertation, I I, I uh, didn't hide those those aspects. And then um, in 1988, I got involved in a um, debate by correspondence with a very close friend of mine, uh, now now departed Janusz Radziowski, a Polish historian, mm-hmm. who said that that uh, kind of pro-upa. Attitude that I had, which I did have because that was what I, I picked up from my milieu. I didn't never studied it earlier uh, That this was crazy that these people were murderers and uh, I Shouldn't shouldn't there's nothing to admire about them. Well, that set me out to uh, Find out what happened mm-hmm. and um, and I began doing that with my uh, late father-in-law's archive. He was the editor of Krakowski visti which was a German newspaper under occupation. And I began studying its attitude towards the Jews. And I realized that it published you know, anti-Semitic uh, articles, uh, sometimes a whole slew of them, during the Holocaust, during yeah. the liquidations of the, of the, of the, of the ghettos. And then there was there's further ins- instances because in 1995, I think it was, yes, it was 1995, um, I was invited to contribute to studies in contemporary jewelry about Ukrainian collaboration um, by Jonathan Frankel, the late Jonathan Frankel. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that got me a week in to work in Yad Vashem and a week to work in uh, YIVO in New York. And then I wrote that first, my first kind of r- researched and thoughtful account of Ukrainian collaboration. that came out like later in the 90s. And and around that time, I thought maybe I should write a book on uh, the Holocaust. But instead, I decided on the Last Judgment book. Mm, I thought, right. you know, this is all going to go away. Uh, Ukraine is now a democratic country. You know, this is not going to be an issue. I finished that book on The Last Judgment Icons in 2006. And then I um, went to Ukraine within weeks of finishing that book, you know, writing the book. And I was about to start thinking about what new topic I should undertake You know, I I, I hadn't, I thought that the Holocaust was pure history and that other people would do it. Mm -hmm. But when I went to Ukraine in 2006 and I went to Lviv, you know, the capital of Western Ukraine, big billboards commemorating the uh, Nationalist Declaration of uh, the Renewal of Ukrainian Statehood on the 30th of June, 1941. It was an anniversary. Pictures of... uh, uh, right. And I thought, "Holy cow! Don't these people know?" <laughs> and uh, so I, I uh, at that time, I made I made my choice. Now I didn't I didn't rush into the deep research that I that I began a little later because I had some administrative responsibilities. I was acting chair of my department, you know that kind of stuff. But you know, two thousand and nine. I went out out to work on the topic, and in two thousand and ten, the president of Ukraine, uh, Viktor Yushchenko, made uh, the OUN leaders heroes. Mm -hmm. Uh, He made Bandera, the leader of one of the factions of the uh, OUN, Uh, he made him a a hero of Ukraine, and he said that streets, parks, schools should be named after OUN and its activists. Well, that, then I began trying to warn people, really, that this was like right. not the direction to go in. And I had such a backlash from the community. But then I sort of retired from trying to argue with the community because I saw that the community was not very receptive. And by the community, I will include Ukrainian mainstream sort of institutions of scholarship. Uh, and then I, uh, I just buckled down. I did more and more reading, more preparatory articles, because I always like to to write articles first, because that's Mm -hmm. the way I test my ideas, and people say, well, that's stupid. And I realize, oh, yeah, okay, so I'll change. And, uh, you know, so then I was working on it. uh, But for a long time, I didn't start the actual book. And then we were having a New Year's party. It was going into 2017, and my wife said, "You know if you really want to do something you're the kind of person who schedules a time and begins doing it and I am I'm a kind of some people say regimented I say I have regular habits uh and I buckled down and every day I wrote for at least an hour, and when I had more time, I wrote for more and uh you know." Well, 20, uh, t- 2018, 2019, 2019, I spent three or four years writing. I can't really uh, say exactly. Three or four years writing until I was happy with what I had and sent it off to Ibidem uh, Farag and they published it. And so mm-hmm. here I am, and even being interviewed by new books.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I there, there's so many things I want to tease out of that story because I, I think in many ways you You've been arguing um, against the current, if I can put words in your mouth, of a lot of this institutionalization of and nationalization, of course, of political memory since 2004, I think since the Orange Revolution. But I, I'm really interested in, in the contents of your book, um, Professor Himka, to ask you about your source base and how your source base led you to some of the earlier works that were published, um, some by German historians, some by Polish historians, some by Ukrainian, and some by Jewish historians. So when you went forward, let's say in this period, when you decided to commit yourself to the project after 2004, what, what did it lead you back to? I mean, was it John Armstrong? Was it the sort of, you know, consensus about integral nationalism? Was it a lot of fascist literature, history of fascism literature? How, how, how did that source base, and, and we can talk about that, lead you back to the, the larger problem? And, and maybe the problem is the problem of Ukrainian
1: nationalism. Um, the source base that I think, uh, when I began working on it, very hard. Uh, the source base that probably had the biggest impact on me uh, was a Jewish um, uh, survivor testimonies and memoirs. And mm-hmm. I, I did a lot of work with them and I, I heard what they had to say and they kind of all told the same story, which is very, very different than anything I had ever heard uh, in, you know, Ukrainian historical publications i uh was also uh, b- began reading uh, the trials of uh you know con- convicted um murderers or uh policemen uh, f- from the holocaust and those those are the sources that most gripped me and and gave mm-hmm. me an insight uh then i went back and reread read or reread a lot of classics uh <laughs> So, or, or, or in my narrow field, classics.
0: Yeah, what, what, are the, what are the classics
1: then for our listeners at New Books Network? At well, least I would what, say what would that Armstrong, start- Armstrong's Ukrainian nationalism was one of them. And, you know, I have a whole chapter on historiography. Right. Uh, so I went back and reread all Friedman. You know, he was one of the first people to work on Ukrainian-Jewish relations and on the destruction of Jews in the New Deal. Uh, now he's really, uh, thanks to the work of Natalia Alexion, it's much easier to see him as yeah. an important pioneer of Holocaust historiography. Um, and I went back, oh, I, I went uh, and I read uh, the works that were published uh, by the working group that was rehabilitating or Oon and UPA in Ukraine. Uh, their works were very interesting for me because they, they, they took a totally different approach than uh, any than Armstrong or others. They used you know they used a lot more Soviet documents, which right. showed them uh, showed and they were pro oun and pro-Upa, but what what their documents were revealing was a much more complex picture. I mean, they left out anti-Semitism, they left out. Uh, 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 activities of O'on and Uppah in the murder of the Jewish population during the Holocaust, but they were, you know, kind of a um, revelation. I'd had some familiarity with their work, but reading it very carefully uh, gave me a lot of insight, I I feel. I mean, readers of the book will judge whether I have any insight or not. Mm
0: So uh, you would say then, just to pick up on this point that the source base that enabled you to broaden your perspective would be Jewish testimony or, is, I mean, ultimately, like, you know, we're in the business of turning numbers into names, right? We're talking about somewhere around 1.5 million deaths, right, in, in this period on the, on the soil and the territory of Ukraine. Was it, is it the territory, was it the, sorry, the testimony like for the Shoah Foundation and things like that, or, or was it mostly perpetrator documents that you're describing that led you to a reassessment
1: oh i uh I'm talking about um the testimonies and memoirs of Jewish survivors. They were probably what gripped me most, and first, I went through the testimonies that were collected immediately actually before the end of World War Two and immediately afterwards uh, by the uh, uh, Zhutovsky Institute by the Jewish Historical Central Jewish Historical Commission later the Jewish Historical Institute. Uh, there's about 7,200 of these uh, mm, testimonies. Right. They're very good. There's a nice index uh, by geographical index. They're in Polish and they're very beautifully uh, constructed. Uh, they're 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 not the exact words that were spoken, but rather I would say summaries, uh, well-written mm-hmm. summaries. Some of them are in Yiddish, and those I had to use translations for. Very much I like the Shoah uh, recordings. What, what was amazing to me was comparing the testimonies from, like, say, nineteen forty-six to testimonies mm-hmm. uh, in about nineteen. 19- in the 1990s and seeing, you know, the continuity of them. Mm -hmm. And then uh, really helpful to me was I had a three, very helpful to me was my three-month stay in the uh, uh, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. And they have all kinds of memoirs, survivor memoirs, uh, organized by location. And I just went through every single one of them, you know. And, and therefore, I had I had testimonies that came from immediately after the war, you know, uh, some uh, forty years, uh, fifty years later after the war, mm-hmm. and ones that were published all over the world and in small pre- presses, you know. So, you know, some people say, "Well, the Jews got together and they they decided to bash the Ukrainians because that's the only way that." that some of the nationalists can explain these memoirs. But the mm-hmm. fact of the matter is they never read them. Once you read them, you see that there's a story there that's, that's quite convincing. You know, mm-hmm. There's no way people could have uh, agreed on a story, if you know what I mean. They, these are individuals speaking what they experienced, and when you read them in the hundreds, you get a good picture of what happened then and then mm-hmm. I, and, and much of what they said was corroborated in the trials of, the, of some of the perpetrators so those mm-hmm. were important moments for then I, I read a lot of memoirs by ukrainians by members of o, o, and OPA. Mm-hmm. You just you have to spend a lot of time reading to yeah write I, I, this.
0: I think I mean I think of the work of a lot of people in in the diaspora and by diaspora I don't mean heterogeneous or, or mono-ethnic, but, but really mixed in, in all sorts of different ways and different political directions. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you some questions a, a, about that. So you mentioned a lot of people's work, the um, family, obviously Peter Potichny, I would put in the category of people who are writing and, and also in some ways involved with the history of O'un. But could could you talk about disputed sources a little bit i mean you have this i think in in a couple of your chapters and especially in chapter two on sources um what 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 led you to you know sort of investigate stories and, and sources like stella krunzbach uh, for example more carefully and, and and i guess how did you determine you know looking at the work of people like Alexander Motel or Xenia Kubiszynski or Frank Kolchevsky, there are many others I could mention Wh- which sources were, were dubious um, or which, you know, might, might be considered even fraudulent. How, how did you go about examining those sources?
1: Well, I, I think I take three cases uh, of disputed sources, which I think are the major three disputed sources. and. And the first one I think I dealt with was the Stetsko. K- oh, yeah. Oh, did I first deal with Stetsko? I don't have the book in front of me for some. Yeah, reason. yeah, yeah. Go, go, ahead and introduce the sources. Well, uh, anyway, so one of the one of the um, the Krenzbach, This is a memoirs supposedly of an is of a Jewish woman who joined UPA and then later uh, fought for. Uh, uh, Palestine, uh, and became a uh, became a member. Uh, worked in the foreign ministry in Israel, and was assassinated. Well, I didn't have to do much investigation on that because the nationalist uh, Bhutan Kordyuk, who's pretty honest, um, uh, tried to. Uh, he, he he knows the people involved. Uh, who would have been involved in this region, and they had never heard of Stella Krenzbach, and Spock. And, mm-hmm. um, and then Philip Friedman, the pioneer uh, right. uh, historian of the Holocaust, uh, he did the Israeli side of the story, and no such person was found uh, to have been murdered, and and the nationalists sometimes you know when people lie, they they lie to a ridiculous point, right. Um, mm. And, and they were even saying that her memoirs were, were, were first published in the Washington Post. And of course, you can hmm. go through the entire Washington Post. <laughs> right. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes you have your clumsy liars, and that's the Stella Krenzbach memoirs. But since it speaks to what people want, a uh, mm. I, I fellow yeah. like Moise uh, uh you know, who, who's now departed, but he took this and he said, "Look at how look at how uh, 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 Upan worked with this Jewish woman," and he put it all over his uh, internet page and he promoted it at conferences. But you know, and and uh, Volodymyr Viatrovych, who wrote a book on Ukrainian Jewish and um, on Oun's on, uh, uh, attitude towards the Jews, accepted it as real coin, and very often in Ukrainian. Uh, historiography you can find that she is the one that uh, that's the Jewish memoir that they like to cite but it was a mm-hmm. fake mm-hmm. The second one was um, the book of facts that immediately uh, um, the book of facts was discovered by the same Volodymyr Piotrovich who believes in Stella Krenzbach. uh and he um, he found a, uh, something called the book of facts which he presented as a chronology of, uh, of, of, of OUN's activities, and in it, there is a, 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 a s- statement that the Germans tried to get the o- OUN to engage in pogroms, but they refused to do this, and they warned Ukrainians not to take part, and for that reason, there were no pogroms any place in Ukraine, or at least in Thank- Western Ukraine which, of course, is nonsense because there are pogroms all over the place. We have lots of testimony about the uh, yeah. militias being involved. Yeah. And uh, it was clearly written after the war. So and, mm-hmm. and, and by 1943, by October 1943, and actually earlier, they began to realize that they should uh, keep low on the killing of the Jews because uh, uh, the Germans were going to lose the war. And uh, they wanted to make uh, they wanted to make uh, overtures to the Western Allies, which were in the end rather successful. Then mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. third case uh, was the disputed autobiography of, um, of Yaroslav Stetsko, the nationalist leader, who said that German methods of extermination should be used in Ukraine and that Jews cannot be assimilated. Uh, so this many nationalists, uh, for instance Virovvit but many others have said, well this is just a Soviet fabrication. but comparing it to an article that that um, that Stichko wrote in 1939, the same phraseology, the same ideas appear. Uh, and then there's a number of other points which show that it's it's a... Clearly, a um, uh, a genuine document. So, right, you know, if you look at these things, and, and of course, when something sounds wrong, then you then you have to look, look look into it a bit. And you know, you might have noticed in my book, for instance, where there's a Jewish testimony, and these women talk about the tortures that uh, that uh, some of the Jewish victims received. And I say, well, this is unlikely. They didn't see it. You know, This, the, they probably what they are doing is judging by the state of the bodies two weeks later in the hot summer and after the dogs got on them. Right. So right. I tried I tried to try tried to figure things out.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, John Paul, I'm really interested in the throughout the book and how, I mean, you as a historian and as a historiographer uncovered the motivations for why particular individuals and historians get wedded if, if that's if that's possible to say to clusters of sources and and I guess I would say beyond that even to clusters of localities and and that's one of my questions for you you know in, in laying out your chapters because obviously you're you're not abiding by the double occupation thesis that so many nationalists um, seize upon and, and even a book like Snyder's bloodlands is one in which he's not Accepting that thesis, but how how do you let's say um, get wedded, if one can put it that way, to to different areas, regions, towns, maybe even at the village level? Because I, I think it's it's about scale for you. Um, can you introduce your reasons why? I mean, for for let's say um, delving very very deeply into particular areas and. And I ask this as as a personal question, too, as someone who translated, you know, histories of some 300 small towns and villages in in occupied areas. So what are are your regions, let's say, or what are your areas and geographical specifics to to places in Ukraine?
1: Well, since I was working on the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, I concentrated on those places where they were most active. Uh, which would have been Galicia, Halicna, Eastern Galicia, or Eastern Little Poland, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, the three, the three oblasts of Lviv, Ternopil, and Ivano-Frankivsk. So, mm-hmm. and it became District Galician during the war. And on Volynia, Volyn, where uh, the nationals were also very strong. So those would be the main areas I would concentrate. And then northern Bukovina was for a while uh, also uh, a place where the nationalists were active. I tried to indicate, you know, their activities in the police forces and civil administrations in the east where they were not so prominent. Uh, Most of the civil administration in Galicia and uh, Volynia and most of that civil administration was appointed by, or sympathetic to, O'un. But in, let's say, Kharkiv and other places, there would be just a sprinkling of O'un people in the police. So, And sometimes uh, in, the civil, in the civil administration. Sometimes the Nazis would get distrustful of these people and they would kill them. They were mm-hmm. profligate killers. So that's my so I, I tried to follow where the action went.
0: hmm Okay. And and in the villages too, is there something in particular where you discovered testimonies or, or evidence to look at the stories in, in um areas which are erased, to borrow, you know, Omer Bartov's phrase. I, I think you actually have mentions of a few individual places which only no have sem- exist. Would no longer exist, right? I mean, were were there some of those that that you were drawn to?
1: Uh, I don't have any particular reason why I was drawn to particular places. I rather, as I say, tried to follow the action. Mm-hmm. So where the nationalists went, that's where I went. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, and what did they do? You know, in various places. Where I have information, for instance, you're talking about villages, but I think when I go into the, let's say, the murders of uh, the summer of 1941 that the uh, Ukrainian national militia committed in Bukovina and Volynia, which I go into in, in more depth, they're not always villages. They're, they're, they could be villages, but but a lot of them are small towns. Um, mm-hmm. What happens in villages, you know, with small Jewish populations, there would be no memoirs from those right. people. There'd be no testimonies. Uh, Jared McBride makes this point in his dissertation, which I hope becomes a book before long, mm-hmm. Uh uh, that we don't really know what happened in all these places. We we know some places because uh, there were some survivors, but you know there could be places where there were no survivors. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Could could you talk a little about I'm turning your your um to your arguments now and, and some of these you draw upon in, in your conclusion, but some of the big arguments that you have in the book about Oun and and Upa and the relationship. I'm also thinking about the period between August 1943 and July of 1944, um, with the declarations of equality for national minorities. I, I don't know if all of our listeners will know this story about the, the Third Assembly and you know the UHVR. What are some of the big arguments about um, your from your findings now in, in the source base against this? of Ounas as national liberators. Could
1: you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, I'm going to flesh out a little bit more about what's uh, about what you're saying. Is that this is defenders of the record of Ouna Upa say uh, that in the summer of 1943. They, uh, after encounters with the with the Soviet population, the pre pre nineteen thirty nine Soviet population, they uh, threw off their their fascist uh, uh, patina and uh, turned into democratic um, democratic actors, and this has been latched on by. Onto, by I would say, most uh, mainstream Ukrainian historians, and it uh, figures very, very prominently in the work of Oleksandr Zaitsev, the historian in Lviv, who otherwise writes really frank and well researched work on the history of the ideology of uh, O.U.N. He's very, very good on that. Up till he stops, he stops always his research before uh, World War II, and certainly before the uh, invasion of uh, Soviet Ukraine by, by the Nazis. So uh, they they like this as a way to say, look, they were bad to start with, but they realized, and they, they went on a better path. But the fact of the matter is that in this same period, uh, uh, certainly, this is when they are committing the most murders of the Polish population in Volhynia, and it's a period where they are mercilessly tracking down Jews in the forest and murdering them, and setting up labor camps for them. Labor camps, and then at the, at the very end of their existence of these labor camps, they killed the inmates. Well, uh, that's not democratic. That's not uh, uh, anything for to help the um, situation of minorities when you kill them. So, uh, as I like to say, and I'm, I don't know if I said it in the book, but I've said it elsewhere. I've written it elsewhere that to take at face value the declarations of August nineteenth of of. Uh, August nineteen forty three and July. The dates now escape me. Nineteen forty four. Nineteen forty four. To take them at face value, you may as well take the Stalin Constitution at face value, introducing Mm. the most democratic country in the world while the terror terror was raging. You know, so I, I just think you have to look at context. Official declarations of politicians, even in our age is cannot be taken at face value as to their actions, and mm-hmm. in this case, even more so, they were in a situation where the Germans were about to lose the war. They were mm-hmm. doing what they could, uh, they didn't They didn't want to stop the Germans from fighting the Soviets. They didn't do anything to, uh, let's say derail supply trains or anything like that. but they realized the germans were were losing. And they didn't want to make an accommodation with the Soviets because that would not work. So they wanted to appeal to the Western nations, the Western allies. And you even have cases, Jewish memoirs, saying that uh, that uh, um, the UPA people, the Banderovs, are called uh, Banderovs, are called in the sources that uh, the 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 the, the UPA people say. Listen, America and England has stopped us from killing Jews now. Come, come, join our uh, our, our, our our labor camp. You know, so mm-hmm. when, and and you have you have clear evidence that there were orders to kill all Jews and to kill Ukrainians who hid mm-hmm. Jews or anybody who hid Jews or Poles for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they that you know that punishment for that was was death. So. Yeah, yeah. This I mean, this, is, this is aimed at, at at London and Washington, those those uh...
0: Right, right. And are you talking, John Paul, mainly about the, the documents for the labor camps in this case? Like we're talking like in Valenia, the labor camps in the forest, those sorts of things. Um w- which sources do you do you have in mind for for future research, future researchers to kind of correct the
1: problem? Well, uh, you know, in the book I, I deal with the labor camps. Most of the information comes from Jewish sources, Mm -hmm. um, Jewish survivor sources. Of course, they weren't, some of them were in the labor camps. Um, and in one case, uh, a group of people who worked in a very small camp were saved by a friend they made within UPA, but he said that they had better escape before, uh, his friends come and kill them. And others, uh, the Jews who survived did not enter the labor camps, because they um, because they heard from local Ukrainians who informed them that all the Jews at the labor camps had been murdered. So, mm-hmm. uh, and then we have though some kind of interesting corroboration. I cited a memoir by a, a uh, veteran of the of Un, who says that Ivan Litvinchuk, a leader in in this area, had set up a number of labor camps where Jews worked, and he's surprised to see that they're not mentioned much in Jewish memoirs, as if he read the Jewish memoirs. But Mm -hmm, the reason why they were not mentioned much in Jewish survivor memoirs is because none of the people who were in these labor camps survived.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I mean, it's so interesting to me, like to pick up on how how you enrich the document collections, because you know, one might think, okay, now that they've been formalized and digitized and produced as um, giant like sources for a younger generation that, that one can just go and read them and, and yet you recreate the context. Um, and that's that's my question for you in dealing not just with the sort of old fashioned Kvelin critique, but also um, security service sources. And, and I'm thinking about the SBU um, security service of, of Ukraine sources in, in Kiev and how problematic they are and, and how they need very close inspection. Um could you maybe, like, if I formulate this as a as a way to give advice to younger historians, um, I'm thinking about the work of, of Roman Chilakdich or Marta Havrishko or Andrei Usach. How how would you, let's say, suggest for a younger generation of, of um, Ukrainian and other sort of transnational historians to look at? Um, Perpetrator documents, not just testimonies, but also the security service um, sources that are avail- available in places like
1: you. Well, I think that, first of all, I have to say that these people do an excellent job. Uh, the young historians in Ukraine are um, they're better than I am. I want to say that. I have a, a bigger picture, right? Because I've been in this business longer. Um, but... When you look at somebody like Marta Havelisk on her work, it's got everything. She has uh, many more uh, testimonies and many more uh, memoirs. She has personal interviews. Uh, she, you know, and, and and she has access to local records, and so do uh, Roman Schlachte and uh, Andri Usat. They have access to a lot of material, they know exactly what they're doing. They're, mm-hmm. um, they have little to learn learn from me, is my, my feeling. Except for, as I say, getting that big forest picture. Uh, and even then, they'll be correcting it and correcting it and correcting it. M- my advice to, to young historians that are not already formulated, people like Rajshankar and, and the ones we've just mentioned, is just to read everything and think critically try to figure things out, you know, read everything and try to figure things out. Mm-hmm.
0: Would you say that there were particular books along the way that, that um, prompted you in different directions? I, I mean, I, I don't want to just urge you toward name dropping, but th- there must, there must have been some books like Kai Struva's work or Dieter Pol, um, which you read when they first came out and then reread. So, could you maybe make some suggestions for those who might be interested in Oun and Upan and Bandera and Stetsko and Shuhevich and Lunkovsky and the others? Where, where would you urge them to start?
1: Well, um, I think Struva's book is is probably uh, 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 probably the best place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, Kai, Kai Struva. Kai Struva. His, um, exactly, the title is... Uh Deutsche Deutsche Herrschaft, uh Ukraine. anyways, it's something like German rule. Uh I have the book on my shelf, but I'm not gonna get it right now. German rule, Ukrainian nationalism, uh anti Gewalt, I think. And right. uh, anti Jewish violence, yes. That's a really good place to start because he does things correctly. He looks at the evidence from uh testimonies and memoirs and he looks at German records which I don't make as much use of as he does but on the other hand I make more use of testimony and uh, he, he, he limits himself to uh, certain testimonies uh, and uh, certain collections of testimony mainly the, the ones from the Jewish Historical Commission and, uh, and he uses the Soviet documents and he puts them all together to try to tell the story he he thinks about what could have happened and what couldn't have happened. Um, by the by, let's say how many people could have been killed. He, he's he's a conservative estimator. I think if I mm. were to take a model book, I would take I would take that. Kai mm, interesting. is a very interesting writer. And the funny thing is, we we've been working on similar themes by accident over the years. <laughs> so, right. I I wrote you know a book called Galician Villagers and the, and the and the Ukrainian National Movement. And it is a good book, I think. It, is, it has little problems with it, but then he writes this brilliant book called und no Nation about uh, Polish and Ukrainian uh peasantry and the national movements of both and and how they extrude the jews from this process of national uh awakening is one of my one of my favorite historians really Uh, Mm. and i would say yeah so read that you got to know languages to do this you got to know german sure you got to know russian ukrainian polish
0: plus yiddish and hebrew right or at least have able translate
1: it would be very good to know yiddish and hebrew I had used Yiddish for earlier work I did, but I didn't revive it for my uh for this book because I had so many sources already and plus I had a lot of help from others who gave me uh polish or Ukrainian or Russian translations of some of the Hebrew and Yiddish testimonies you know I'm particularly grateful to to uh like Mikhailo Kihui uh andev who uh would would send me translations of things because he, he was working on the, on the, the Roma Holocaust uh, mm. and some of the same perpetrators were involved
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I mean I guess yeah I, the fact that you mentioned Struva is, is fascinating to me it was one of the books that Omar Bartov gave me to read so um, I, I think about the new directions that, that you mentioned. And, and I want to ask, um, you know, sort of some final questions about Ukraine for you. So uh, we have Viatrovich Vy- whom you mentioned, who's no longer in charge as of 2019. And there's a new director. And I think um, for anyone who is concerned with, um, let's say, civic space, and civic patriotism, and civic nationalism and holding these conversations, on a couple of different levels, whether it's vergangenheidsbewältigung or, or property restitution, I, I'm interested in, in what you might see as possible in Ukraine in the 20, 2020s. You know, give, given all the oligarchic space, but um, what 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 conversations might you imagine a younger group doing this research holding in in this you know now 2020s in this coming?
1: Well, you know, there's a strong resistance in Ukraine to any Holocaust research that um, includes the activities of the nationalists. So, the state generally tries to promote narratives in which uh, the nationalist factor in the Holocaust is played down. And there are Jewish organizations and uh, leading Jewish figures that go along with this. So, uh, Yosef Zisels and his uh, Association of Ukrainian Jewelry thinks that all mention of nationalist perpetration is basically a Kremlin plot. And Mm -hmm. Anatoly Podolsky, who leads the uh, heads the leading uh, center for Holocaust Studies in Kiev, he also does not want to uh, deal with uh, with nationalist perpetration these things and I've talked to other Jewish scholars on the Holocaust who live in Ukraine, and they say things like well we don't want to uh, we don't want to insult." or 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 we have to respect the sensitivities of our Ukrainian colleagues. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. On the other hand, these Ukrainian scholars, like the Usaches and Havrishkos, et cetera, uh they don't have that same kind of they're not Jews talking about how evil the Ukrainians are. And and by the way, nobody's saying Ukrainians are evil, none of these intelligent people. They're they're just looking at, at uh what happened, you know, some people are were involved in, and in, uh, some Ukrainians were involved, particularly the Nationalists, but others were involved in the persecution of the Jews. It was actually um, um, something that happened, just like it happened in many other countries. So uh, the kind of pushback they would get would be pretty terrible. I know that they have... Uh, let me now just pretend that there's some kind of generic thing and that there are not individuals involved. But I know that people have uh, been uh, persecuted at their jobs or lost their jobs for mm. taking a critical position on the nationalists. Um, and the real, a big center where this kind of research can be freely done is the is the Center for uh, Urban History of, of, uh, Cent- of, of Central Europe uh, in Lviv. Mm-hmm. But that's, that has foreign funding. I mean, uh, Harold Binger I... has generously uh, supported that institution. They built it from the very scratch, and it is a place where critical history can be done. Uh, you can't get real critical history at Ukrainian Catholic University. You can't find it in... Uh, 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 the national universities in Lviv and Kayu. Uh, the Academy of Sciences steps back on this issue as well. But there are little pockets. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of these young scholars. Oh, and Radchenko and Karkev set up his own little institute, and he's well treated there. And he's he's a really nice guy, and he's he's one of these people who who don't annoy others like 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 <laughs> I sometimes do. Um, Uh, He's easy to get along with and he's got a little place. But very much their position depends on help from abroad. Uh, You know, they need the scholarships, fellowships at the Holocaust Museum in Washington and at Yad Vashem and in other places. This gives them uh, access to sources they would not be able to get in Ukraine and also exposure to uh, uh, the wider scholarship on the Holocaust, and um, they make friends among the wise wider circle of students at the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So I think that they're going to get pushback. <laughs> A big case is the Babi Yar uh, Memorial, mm-hmm. um, where in the news again. Yeah, mm-hmm. where there are two camps, and one of those camps. Has a real history of the Holocaust, and the other doesn't. But one has some funding from Russians, and the other doesn't. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's, a, it's 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 it's. I'm hoping that that the book contributes to some people's rethinking this. I mean, the the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies, the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, they were inviting the Vyatroviches and. And like, and giving them kind of academic credentials and and yeah. partnerships with that, and and maybe maybe when a larger group in East European studies and in Holocaust studies um, gets the picture of what was happening, maybe they'll be a little bit less reticent. I mean, they have to bow to their donors, so they can't really promote this right. kind of thing,
0: right? Well, I, I, you know, I'm glad in the, I'm glad for your honesty here in talking about questions um, which have larger implications, not just in Ukrainian hyphen relations or Ukrainian Jewish relations, but also Russian-Ukrainian relations. Um, this issue of platforming and deplatforming and funding and defunding, I think these conversations have been held in private for many, many years, but but not so much in public. And I'm hoping that that can be aired. Um, my last question for you is, is um, just a simple one, since we've been talking about Ukrainian nationalists and the Holocaust, your book, if you could talk a little about your other book, and maybe your current research interests or things that you're working on for our listeners here at New Books Network.
1: Okay. Uh, just maybe weeks or around the same time that the book on the Holocaust was released, uh, I was co-editor with uh, Franz Sabol. Of a book on Eastern Christians in the Habsburg Monarchy, which was published by uh, CIUS Press, that's Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies Press. And uh, you know, France is one of the leading historians of the Habsburg Monarchy. What we were working on was a book that uh, we didn't write much ourselves. We wrote the introduction. We put the, put it together but it's an attempt to be a bit of a corrective in Austrian studies and studies of the monarchy, Habsburg monarchy, in that we've taken uh, not a single crown land, not a, not a viewpoint from Vienna or Budapest, but we've looked at a group that constituted you know, a significant proportion of uh, the population throughout the monarchy, and uh, uh, tried to show that the Eastern Christian um, component uh, was um, both ran across crown lands of Austria and was, an, was a significant cultural uh, component of the monarchy's culture. And Eastern Christians, we tried to uh, show that this kind of Western extension of Orthodoxy and Uniatism um, provided some very interesting hybrid uh, cultures, and we have excellent authors. I and mean, um, mm. Bob Magluti wrote a long introduction yeah. about the uh, about all the Eastern Christians in the monarchy, and we have. Oh, we. Yeah, I I don't want to go through. It. I've done a whole whole interview sure. on this
0: people are going to have to read the book I'm afraid right and, and yeah. listen to your other interview
1: but, uh, um, and then what I'm sure. working on now is uh, actually I'm in a period of kind of suspended animation here um, I'm trying to figure out what to do next
0: I, I, I'm, I'm sure you're going to be working on something. So uh, thank you for that. You have two books out simultaneously. So <laughs> it's, all, it's almost unfair to ask you about what, what you're working on night and day. But I, con- I congratulate you, um, Professor Himka, on, on both. And I really wanted just to say thank you for your time and for all of your work and um, and for promoting Scholars too who really started from zero and... Um, began reading about you and, and your life and past and identities and how you came to all of these things, both personally uh, and professionally. So I thank you for that.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much, Stephen, for having me on the program. I, I think it's wonderful that you do this work. And I'm Stephen Siegel
0: here at New Books Network. We've been speaking with historian and professor John Paul Hymka University of Alberta in Canada, now Professor Emeritus. His new book is called Ukrainian Nationalists and the Holocaust, Oun and UPA's Participation in the Destruction of Ukrainian Jewry. This is published by Ibidem Press, distributed by Columbia University Press as part of its Ukrainian Voices series, new series, published 2021. Thanks so much again uh, to John Paul and all of our listeners for being here with us on the podcast today. Until next time.